This is Graphic Novel TK, your podcast guide to comic book publishing. Hi, and welcome to Graphic Novel TK. I'm Gina Gagliano. And I'm Allison Wilgus. Today, we're going to explore the inner workings of comics academia with Margaret Galvin. Margaret, can you tell us a little about who you are, how you started working with comics, and what you're doing now? Sure. So I have always loved comics. I've always read comics. Um, I got into comics when I was young, watching the X-Men cartoons um, on Saturday morning cartoons. They're fantastic. Um, And if you know the X-Men cartoons, which you should, there's a a wide array of um, female characters. Um, And so for me as a young girl, that was really important um, and something that got me into reading comics. But that was something that was frustrating to me continuing to read comics because there weren't always strong female characters in the comics that I would encounter um, at the grocery store or later when I went to the comic book shop. And so there was a period in my life where I wasn't reading comics or was frustrated with the comics I was reading. And so I really got back into comics in sort of a serious way in college and in graduate school when I started to find um, more comics by a more diverse array of creators learning about the fact that um, about like women and um, people of color and um, all sorts of folks who are um, creating comics all across um, history. Um, I'm talking mostly in sort of an American context here from these diverse perspectives, but things I just had no access to or that weren't being published in um, the venues that I would look to when I went to my comic book shop. Um, So it was really sort of finding these other comics that spoke more um, to who I was that got me interested in sort of taking them on in a more serious way and uh, thinking about um, how to, you know, recuperate some of these things. Because some of these comics aren't um, ones that have ever been reprinted or they were available in their time. Um, I'm thinking here of comics printed in like grassroots newspapers um, in Mm -hmm. the 70s to raise awareness about feminism. Um, by artists who were just locally producing these comics um, and are really interested and invested in the form, but they're not necessarily producing comics elsewhere. Um, I'm talking about artists who are producing comics in zines. um, And there's a lot of people who look to zines in the 1990s, Riot Girl, who um, study these things and sort of conversations about zines, but often people talking about comics don't study these or don't sort of recognize that zines have been a really fruitful space, um, especially today for a lot of women and non-binary and um, all sorts of creators who sort of got their start in zines. So there's all these sort of spaces um, of comics, of creators and comics that weren't really ones that I was encountering. Um, And so sort of thinking about these um, got me started. Um, And I've done over the last several years, several years, dozens um, of trips to archives, grassroots archives um, in universities also, um, studying sort of and finding these comics and other sorts of image text forms from especially across, um, I'm looking at sort of the 1980s and social movements and change um, and finding all of these works by all these creators um, that we often don't know of. Um, So that's sort of a lot there, but um, for me, it's, it's very, uh, exciting to sort of see that all of these people were doing comics or thinking about sort of social change, especially for me, that's a big thing um, through the comics form. Wow, that's amazing. It sounds like it's such a great project. It is also very nice to listen to people who are like comics outsiders, for lack of a better way of putting it, who aren't like in the industry talking about things other than fairly mainstream books. It's always nice. Yeah, I feel like Sometimes you talk to people who are, you know, either academics or librarians, and they're kind of like, well, my main interest is Spider-Man. Yeah. I love and teach mainstream comics as well and from, you know, reputable publishers, but I'm I'm also just interested in all of these uh, comics that, you know, people haven't seen, but it does present problems in terms of how to, like, teach with these things, Mm -hmm. you know, I find myself buying a lot now, making, building my own collection. Um, So, you know, there are sort of unique challenges to uh, studying very obscure, difficult to find things. Well, a lot of them are very ephemeral. Yeah. Yes. So you, you're a professor. What part of 
your job of being a professor is comics? Is it like 50% of your job? Like, what are the things that you're doing? Like, at the university at your office that you feel like, yes, I'm employed to be doing this comics related thing? Well, I'm actually really lucky in that I got the job title I was hired in is visual rhetoric. Um, oh, nice. But they really wanted someone who did comics, which is very rare and not something I can say there is a pathway to finding a job like this because these jobs are, yeah, I feel very lucky um, that that this had happened. They're looking for someone who did visual rhetoric, but they're also looking for someone who's interested in like feminist and queer perspectives. So, you know, you see the job ad in the sort of dream world and you're like, this is written for me. And I'm like, literally, this is exactly what I do. Um, so it's fantastic. So I can teach comics pretty much all the time and I do, but I also teach sort of other forms, um, of visual rhetoric or thinking about connections of comics to sort of other sort of modes of thinking or representing. So uh, for instance, uh, this semester, one of the undergraduate classes I'm teaching is called um, Intersectionality Theory and Visual Rhetoric. So it sounds very um, formal, but what we're doing is we're studying feminist theory through the idea of intersectionality, that our identities are sort of that we're how we understand our identity is sort of marked by all these sort of different markers of our identity and they sort of all come together. So who we are at as a racial subject, as you know, our class position, our sexuality, our gender identity, all these things are sort of working together. Um, and we're looking at this through sort of feminist theory that's been written, but since I'm a visual rhetoric person, we're also studying it through zines and comics. Um, so a lot of um, stuff from the 1990s, the riot girl scene, um, Mimi Thee Nguyen's um, work on race riot is fantastic. Um, she is also actually an academic who studies zines and sort of punk subcultures. Um, but so we're we're studying these sort of larger concepts, but then looking at them in sort of visual forms. I, I can do all comics all the time, but I sort of like, you know, what sort of world of comics do I want to sort of introduce the students to today? Yeah. So, uh, that all sounds great. Your job sounds so amazing. Uh, so you're doing teaching. You're also doing some writing, right? Some academic writing. Oh, yes. Um, so um, I'm at the University of Florida. Um, it is a, a research intensive university. Um, you know, we pride ourselves on our research. Um, so I have expectations that I will do a lot of research. Um, but for me, you know, one of the things that is really uh, great about the fact that I can sort of teach in my area of interest is that my research and teaching go hand in hand. Um, so I find these things sort of um, what I'm interested in uh, working on is what I am interested in teaching, but I also think of it more capaciously, right? So it's not just like, here are the two texts I'm like interested in, and those are going to be the ones we read, but sort of what is sort of, what are the things I'm interested in? And then what's the potential world that we could build around it that sort of opens up to other things um, that I'm not necessarily uh, writing about right now, but might write about in the future or might be connected to what I'm writing about. Because often I'm writing about sort of um, the 1980s, um, sort of this movement between feminist and um, queer activism that's happening in the 1980s. But I'm also, when I'm teaching, I'm teaching across um, like a larger swath of like what's happening today, what's happened so before the 1980s, I'm often, since I'm um, in a literature department, I think is important to say, um, and I'm also sort of an Americanist, I'm teaching usually in a more American context, and make of that what you will. <laughs> but, you know, those are some of the, uh, the ways in which sort of my work is structured. And you do some work around, uh, like, networks and infrastructure, too, like talking about how uh, comics and communities and cartoonists are connected to each other. Yes. So I'm really, perhaps obsessively interested in, like, publication histories. One of the big sort of places I started to do a lot of work was in the feminist underground. So um, underground and comics in general sort of... uh, you know, reaction in some ways against mainstream comics of the 1950s being um, censored. I'm sort of shorthanding here. So any experts listening in, you know, I, um, I'm i just sort of giving the basics um, for people. Um, and then the underground counterculture, hippies, drugs, free love, all of this stuff. 
Um, and then we have at the same time sort of women's liberation arising. Um, and then women are saying we want to find space in sort of underground comics for ourselves. And we're going to create these comics, these comic series, women's comics and tits and clits. I love my job because I can say things like tits and clits. It is professionally relevant. And it is professionally relevant. It's, it's true. But there was all these different women um, publishing in them. And these series, um, women's comics ran from 1972 to 1992. There were 17 issues, over 100 different women in that time. Um, and not only uh, people who all knew each other at the outset, but generations of women. In the 1980s, there was a whole new generation of women coming of age um, in women's comics. And so I'm interested in sort of these networks and communities. Um, also, you know, in the 1980s, we have a series that starts called Gay Comics. It's from 1980 to 1998. It's 25 issues. Um, it has three um, gay male editors over the course of the run, Howard Cruz, um, Robert Triptow, and Andy Mangles. But one of the things that was really powerful for there is they were saying, we want um, to represent all of the LGBTQ experience, and we want to sort of have an sort of even balance um, as among our sort of larger contingents, which are going to be lesbians and gay men, although, you know, LGBTQ encompasses a wider array of that. Um, so that also becomes a really fruitful space for women to explore their sexuality and start to sort of create this uh, lesbian comics revolution, which you really see in the 1990s. Um, in the early 90s, there's all of these women uh, making uh, these lesbian comics all over the place. There's um, Andrea Natalie, who's a cartoonist, uh, starts the Lesbian Cartoonist Network and has this newsletter that goes on for many years. And I actually, the reason I know about the Lesbian Cartoonist Network is uh, thanks to uh, cartoonist Jennifer Camper, who is fantastic, who does a lot of amazing cartooning, but also a lot of important work building community among comics artists, has been working with Justin Hall on the Queers and Comics Conference over the last few years. Camper has been sort of very generous with me um, and one time uh, let me sort of uh, come sift through her file. And I got to see a whole you know bunch of sort of network building and understood sort of what was happening in the early 90s in this deeper way. Um, so it's fantastic. But so for me, like, you know, networks open onto networks, open onto networks. And it's not always for me who's sort of at the center of the network, like who sort of was the most important or, or most prolific person who published in women news or gay comics or um, tits and clits or any other number of um, publications. But who are all these other people at the margins? Who are these people who are connecting to different spaces of social movement? Who are the folks who are publishing here, there, and everywhere across a lot of different spaces? You know, what um, what sort of opens up for the opportunity of this publication, but sort of for future opportunities for mentoring new artists? I have an amazing sort of um, person who I like to think alongside, another academic, Leah Meismer. Um, and she thinks often about sort of how these comics operate as spaces of mentorship. Um, for artists. And so when I say that, I'm thinking of her work too. So, you know, I'm interested in cartoonist communities and how comics facilitate communities like on the page, but also socially. But I'm also, my work has been indebted to a lot of people and being in community with a lot of people to sort of find some of these networks. That's very cool. Yeah. So Let's go back a, a few steps back into when you were you were starting to get into academia. You know, I know you said you you found this job description and you're like, this is the perfect job. But were you worried at all doing comics academic work about being able to build a successful career for yourself? Like it's not exactly like history or math or something where you're like every school in the country is going to have a position in this area? Oh, I mean, definitely. Interestingly, when I went to grad school, I thought I wanted to do feminist science fiction. That's a good area, too. I, I'm a fan. A fantastic area. But then I found, you know, some folks who were interested in comics, um, but that wasn't necessarily their sole interest. So for me, comics has always been something that's, you know, in conversation with other um, disciplines, other sort of, um, for me, it's like women's studies is really important. I think you can probably hear the gender studies angle and a lot of how I'm approaching this. But for me, comics has always sort of been interdisciplinary. But I've also 
you know, I've had a lot of folks who've been really supportive of my work. And part of that is also because of folks who've come before me who've been doing some groundbreaking work in comics, like Hilary Chute with Graphic Women, um, Tanir Oxman, um, whose book, I'm going to, I don't want to get the title wrong, but her, she does amazing work on Jewish women in comics. She was a student in the program um, sort of earlier, farther along than me. And so her doing all of this work on comics um, and her success was one of the, sort of the direct inspirations to me. But at, at the same time, I had lots of folks um, who were telling me um, in different ways and not necessarily folks they directly work with who were like, well, don't do comics. You're not going to get a job. Like it's not serious literature. You want to bank on doing something that has job listings every year. Right. I mean, academia is a tough market in general. Um, and so one of the things I was thinking about is, well, I have this area of interest that I'm really interested in. Right. Um, but there aren't necessarily direct jobs in that area ever. Um, so, but what are the other disciplines I'm interested in? And so for me, it was women's studies. Um, I was also, there's a lot of jobs in composition and rhetoric, and I teach a lot of um, writing courses. And I'm thinking a lot about, uh, you know, pedagogy, how to teach. Um, and I also came um, from a place where there are a lot of folks who were very interested in pedagogy as research. So that's sort of important for me. Um, I've also done uh, this sort of network work that I do is very uh, informed by some digital tools. So I was working in what we call the digital humanities or thinking about how digital tools and um, other sorts of ways of technology can help us think differently about literature. That's not very well put. But um, so I was thinking about, you know, what are these other fields that I'm interested in and invested in? What are the other fields that are hiring? Um, and how um, can my work be in conversation with these other fields? And how, my, how is my work already in conversation with these other fields? So this is something I was thinking about, you know, years away from, you know, the whole time I was forming myself as a scholar, um, sort of thinking through um, comics are always inherently interdisciplinary, but how can I position myself as a scholar in a way that looks like it's not just, comics aren't just the only thing that I do, um, but they're sort of informed by these other um, lenses. I also did look that book up, and it's How Come Boys Get to Keep Their Noses, Women in Jewish American Identity in Contemporary Graphic Memoir. Is that the one you're thinking of? Yeah. It sounds really interesting. <laughs> I, I feel like all the things that you're saying about community are really resonating with me. And I feel like it's working with you on this level of you're like researching about community and... Um, you know, like thinking about community, but can you also talk about like the community of scholars that you you work with? Because as well as, uh, you know, your personal mentors, there's also like a group of people who do academia in the comics and graphic novels area. And you have like connections with them and like you meet up occasionally. And there's events like Queers and Comics, like you mentioned, obviously, where kind of those paths are crossing more physically anyway. Yeah. So how does that space work? Sure. Great question. Um, I think for me, comics community of scholars outside of my institution has been really important. There are institutions uh, like the institution I'm at right now, University of Florida, which has sort of a strong comics presence um, and lots of people who are interested in comics in various ways. Um, and where I went to grad school, that wasn't as much the case. I mean, where I went to grad school, my, the person I work with, Nancy K. Miller, um, works on comics and fantastically thinks about comics as sort of a memoir form, often alongside other sorts of uh, forms of memoir. I also worked um, with Jonathan W. Gray, who is a fantastic scholar on race and comics. But there weren't a lot of other people at my level, um, aside from Tanier Oxman, who I mentioned, um, doing uh, comics or thinking about comics. Um, and so one of the things that was important for me is really finding other people to be in contact with, um, you know, at conferences. Um, so Leah Meisemer, who I mentioned earlier, she and I met um, at a Modern Language Association conference um, in Chicago years and years and years ago. And she has been such an important interlocutor for me. Like we've been in conversation for years and years and years, and we've collaborated on putting together a number of panels um, that bring other scholars together at future conferences and the Modern Language Association conference is sort of like the big deal, well, big deal in uh, quotes, uh, 
conference for the humanities. It's our, it's our sort of our professional conference. If you've ever, uh, you know, you're in college at one, once upon a time and you wrote a college paper and you had to sort of put um, citations in your paper, the MLA is one of those citation styles you might use. And so we have this huge conference um, and we all come together and there's a, a contingent of folks who are interested in comics there. And so for me, for many years, that was uh, my community of sort of comic scholars, um, especially because as uh, sort of a beginning scholar, you'd always have the opportunity to go to tons of different other conferences. And I was also trying to uh, go to conferences in a variety of interdisciplinary fields. But I've also, in the last few years especially, had a chance to go to some more um, comics-focused conferences um, and met a whole, like, huge array of people. And there's also um, a new, the Comic Study Society had its first conference uh, last year, and it's having its second conference this summer. Um, and that's been a really fantastic generative space. Um, a number of um, scholars and I, Leah Meismer included, but also um, Rachel Miller, Francesca Lynn, and uh, Jenny Blank. I think that's all of us. Um, but we did a, a panel about comics history and sort of women and thinking about, often we're talking about comics history, we're often talking about men and we're talking about memoir, we're often talking about women. So let's like talk about women within comics history and sort of write us into the genealogy and have us be central and not be add-ons. Um, and we're thinking as position of scholars, but thinking about creators as well. Um, and so there's just been, for me, over especially the last few years, um, just sort of, um, especially since I have this job now where I can sort of devote myself um, full force to comics, um, having sort of an opportunity to dialogue um, with a lot of comics creators um, at conferences, but also on the page. So there was an um, issue um, called Queer About Comics. Um, it's in a journal called American Literature. Um, and Derek Scott and Ramsey Fawaz um, co-edited it, and I uh, was able to do a piece in there. And that piece actually won some awards, uh, got two awards. That piece is about Alison Bechtel. Congratulations. And her early career in the 1980s and sort of how she grew as an artist in sort of publishing in grassroots newspapers. Um, so, you know, social movement and change and how that informed her as an artist. So she's sort of not an artist exactly on her own merits because she sort of gets held up as this mythic creature, but it's her in community that's really important. Um, but that whole issue has so many fantastic scholars in it. Um, Andre Carrington, um, Yetta Howard, Rebecca Wanzo, um, Jessica Q. Stark. I'm going to forget. There's a whole bunch of other people um, that I'm forgetting right now, so I'm sorry. But it's just an amazing conglomeration of people who are thinking um, about comics, but who are thinking about comics through a queer paradigm. And for me, that's been a really exciting place that sort of opened up in the last few years, um, having people thinking about comics alongside um, these other interests. Because often, um, you know, we weren't talking enough about gender or sexuality, um, sometimes in, in scholarship um, around comics as much as we should be. And now that there's sort of a space to talk about those things. And um, Ramsey Fawaz and Derek Scott, they're fantastic. And um, Ramsey in particular has been a uh, amazing um, connector of community um, and a model for um, my own scholarship. Um, so, you know, all of my work is indebted to all these folks I've mentioned and then a whole bunch of other folks too. Can you talk a little about how your students respond to all of this? Like, so you're you're teaching these classes about visual rhetoric. Like, are they super excited to be getting to read comics? Luckily, so I teach um, mostly upper division undergraduate courses and some graduate courses. Um, so, and the courses I teach often, I always put, you have to put together course descriptions of the courses I teach. People are in them because they want to be in them. Like they have self-selected into these spaces or I don't know, maybe they closed their eyes and pressed a button on the computer and they got into my class, but. But more likely they self-selected into the spaces. They've, they've chosen to be there, um, which is different from when I've been teaching like first year writing or other courses in the past where a student had to be in your class. Like it's a requirement, right? So it's a different sort of sense. So I definitely have students who, uh, want to take the whole major, like of only my classes. And I'm like, no, <laughs> yeah. take other people's classes too. Um, cause we also, I mean, the University of Florida, our department, we have, 
uh, amazing scholars in other sorts of forms of visual literatures, um, some people doing new media. Um, we have a huge um, sort of children's literature focus, which is sort of like those, those people also teach comics too, um, and they're great. Um, we are a very eclectic uh, forward-thinking department of people who respect canonical traditional literatures, but also see them um, as living, you know, and cohabitating alongside sort of an array of um, more, I don't want to say unconventional, but unconventional in the literature department or conventional liter literary forms or forms that are, are often not taken seriously enough by like academic um, spaces. How are you putting together your syllabus? Uh, so for one thing, how many different classes do you generally teach in a given semester or year? I teach two courses a semester, which is fantastic, but that's also because there's a heavy research expectation. And so like, how are you putting your, your syllabi together for this? Is it changing frequently? Do you have like kind of a core that you then take things in and out of? Like, how are you sort of putting together what your students are going to be reading? We have like complete autonomy as to what we teach. So I just have to go and look at the course. Um, you know, we have courses on the books, sort of general courses on the books. So I go and I select one and I say, well, how can I make this comics? <laughs> yeah, or how can I have, you know, a sort of a visual angle to it? So um, I often teach, like, there's sort of like an American women in literature one, and I use that to teach sort of a, a general sort of uh, American women in comics, um, where students sort of study an array of um, important um creators, although I don't like to be too, like, you know, we're, we're going to select a few, but I'm not going to say like, these are the most important ones, but ones that have been sort of relevant in a way. And then mm -hmm. students will, they then do a Wikipedia project where they research another woman creator uh, who's been underrepresented on Wikipedia and do the work to sort of recuperate her on Wikipedia. Oh, that's really cool. And like build up her profile. And so I've done that a few times. So trying to find ways where I can include a lot of introduce students to a wide array of comics, more than what they think of comics, and uh, have them even sort of bringing in their interests into the into the classroom even further, and finding ways to sort of shape research so they can sort of bring in more of what they're interested in. Um, one of the things I love about my classes, which I don't think is always typical of comics classes, is I have a lot of people who are first time comics readers in my classes who have these notions of what comics are, who think comics aren't for them. Um, but who feel safe, and I want to—I I think I want to use that word there—safe to be in my classes, and they find it a safe space to learn about comics. And they don't feel like they need to know everything that happened in a particular run of a comic series to feel like they can participate in discussion. Um, and so I think that's really important to think about when people are teaching comics classes: is how can they welcome new people in, right? And how can they teach comics in a way that doesn't feel like it's a gated community um, of people who need to know something already about comics. I don't mean to lean on you here, but I'm like actually really curious about this because I, I, I'm coming at this more from the realm of like you're on a panel and somebody asks you name five comics I should read and you have to off the top of your head think of something. Um, but I mean, th there's definitely this tendency of like sort of similar titles kind of coming up over and over again. And I'm sure that part of what you're doing is trying to not just pick the five most obvious things all the time. So, I mean, like, are you literally, like, do you stand in your library and look at all your books? Do you have, like, a like a big Google Doc that you, or a spreadsheet where you write things down? Do you talk to other professors? Like, how are you going through this enormous, because you've read an enormous amount of stuff, I'm sure, over the course of your academic career in your life. How are you sort of winnowing all of that down into which things you're going to be selecting for your classroom? I mean, it's tough. I do have an enormous Google Doc, right? Um, and I put a lot of things in there. But actually, one of the things I've been doing sometimes also is I will teach something that's like, for instance, Art Spiegelman's mouse gets taught so much. And so one of the things I need to do for myself is like, okay, well, I guess I need to teach this. But I need to teach this with a caveat that it does get taught so much to my students and be honest with that and have them think about what is it about it that gets taught? Why does it get taught so much? Um, but then to pair those with other, um, you know, more contemporary, um, lesser known things to sort of give my students a sense of the publishing landscape of comics. Um, but also trying to think of, um, like I am in the process right now, I'm going to do a queer comics class next year. And I have like a huge list of creators. And one of the things I did to sort of 
make my list because I'm thinking about, you know, I'm thinking about gay comics in the 1980s at series, but I'm also like looking on my Instagram and going back through my Instagram, I'm like, which cartoonists am I following right now who are doing amazing work? Um, which things are coming out from presses right now? Um, like there's been a, a number of comics recently about pronouns um, that are fantastic coming out or are about to come out. Um, who are artists um, that folks are talking about? So like who's who's talking about what artists on Autostraddle, which I, I love Autostraddle, um, which for those of you who don't know is an amazing like lesbian website, um, lesbian in the sort of most capacious uh, way of things, of, of thinking. Um, but, you know, because there's a lot of articles on there, not just about comics coming out now, but sort of comics in the past. Um, so I do a lot of reading and thinking and um, talking to folks about what they're interested in and trying to also think about, um, like, trying to balance, like, what are things people will have expected that you read, like Mouse. Like, I feel like in some ways... I need you to, I need my students to know that mouse was a big deal and here's why it was a big deal, right? In some ways. Um, but how do I balance that with things that people have been ignoring, but that should be a big deal, right? Because I feel like I'm in some ways saying like, well, this should be a big deal. Like we need to be reading, um, you know, Greasy Bats that gets published by Autostraddle. I'm like, I love this comic. It's so good. Um, you know, we need to be reading a, a whole wide array of things. Like, I almost want to just pull up my Google Doc to you right now. And just, <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, like, who are these folks we need to be reading? Um, you know, like, we, we need to be reading just everything. Um, but also trying to figure out ways where, like, I'm not always determining what the students read. So, like, having sort of assignments sometimes where I'm like, I want you to go um, – like with the zines, like I want you to go look at the queer zine archive project or the people of colors uh, zine project. So there's these two like zine repositories on the internet. I want you to go look at them and find like comics, interesting comics, interesting sort of visual works on them and bring them to the classroom and we'll talk about it. Or, um, you know, there's these um, databases, one of them is called independent voices um, that gathers together a lot of, um, grassroots newspapers from the 1960s, 70s, 80s, like go through them, find some comics and let's talk about those comics. Um, or let's look at, you know, Mary Naomi's um, databases, the queer cartoonist database, the people of color cartoonist database, and like, let's go find folks on there. So how, how can I also make spaces in my classrooms where students determine some of the things that we think about and some of the things um, that we're working with? And so how do you balance like what you discuss or what you bring to the class of like zines versus newspaper comics versus maybe web comics versus graphic novels, or maybe they're not versus each other. Maybe they're like coming together in a more harmonious fashion than that. I mean, one of the things I want to show my students is that comics are everywhere. Right. And they've been produced in all of these different forms and in all of these different places. And what my students often come in is thinking of comics is sort of like superhero comics and the films. Um, and I definitely want to leave some space for the people who are really excited about those, but to also have space of like comics are in all of these spaces, especially comics. I mean, cartoonists publishing today are often, you know, taking advantage of all these different platforms um, and potential and sort of, you know, publishing across spaces and are sort of utilizing all of these different spaces in very savvy ways, or even cartoonists who have you know, long established careers um, are, you know, are on Facebook or have sort of websites and blogs. And, and these are, you know, important spaces of discussion, but also important spaces to circulate comics, um, to think about the comics form. And so, you know, all of these um, spaces, what, what sort of opportunities are um, allowed in these spaces? Cause I'm, you know, I'm sort of aware of, uh, you know, mainstream comics offer cer like certain sorts of things and then grassroots publications offer different sorts of things. I want students to also be, one of the things I want them to sort of be aware of in my class is sort of these different kinds of structures and sort of, I guess it's sort of, we would call it sort of a book history angle and approach that sort of introduces them or has them aware of sort of the publishing landscape um, in a way that's very important to comics. It's very important to a lot of kinds of literature. But for me, as 
how I work and think about comics, it's really important that they come away with that sort of understanding of um, varied publishing landscape. Like all the different gatekeepers and curators and whatnot who are sort of determining what's in these spaces. Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, and I do that through a variety of ways. And sometimes the, sometimes they get it in one way, they get it in another way, or, you know, um, but I want to say, you know, the thing that you think, the one thing you think that sort of comic sense monolithic, it's not monolithic. It's never been monolithic. Um, that the stereotypes you think about of who can read comics, who comics are for, that's not true. Um, comics are various. Comics are, you know, everywhere and they've always been everywhere. And, you know, part of the problem is that, you know, certain, certain places have been sort of venerated over and above, but also, um, some people and scholars are also sometimes part of this have often are talking about all the, the same comics over and over and over again. And that's not just like everyone's just talking about mouse, but even Alison Bechtel, whose work I love, everyone's just talking about fun home. Um, and so when I work with Alison Bechtel, it's like, well, what other things did she do? And what other sorts of conversations was she a part of that people aren't talking about? Because we need to talk about a wider array of comics and a wider array of creators and, you know, be aware of this, you know, multivarious publishing landscape and all these different ways um, that cartoonists are doing their work and being in community and being in- influenced by the world around them. So because this is a podcast that in in the main part is focused on authors and how their books get out there, besides convincing Autostraddle to write articles about them, are there ways that authors should be thinking about bringing their books to your awareness? Like, how, how do you find things in such a way that someone could reverse engineer it from the other side? <laughs> Besides getting on auto straddle. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's uh, a good, a good step. I, I totally agree with you there. Everyone should uh, go work with auto straddle all the time. I mean, I think today one of the things um you know it's like where what are um folks social media presence right for cartoonists today like who's on instagram um who's got a blog who's got a twitter it's not that you have to do all of these things but it's like figure out which one works really well for you to reach an audience and go with it and like run with it um because i'm often finding artists work um I definitely mentioned Instagram earlier. I'm really into Instagram. I love what people can do on Instagram with comics, not only sort of using um, Instagram to do these sort of short comics that you can run through, but for um, artists sharing like their work in progress. So it's not just always about disseminating the comics themselves, but sort of showing sort of their artistic progress and process, I think is really interesting. Um, so finding ways to sort of, you know, show like little bits and pieces of their work and get people interested in their work um, and interested in following their work um, and seeing where it goes and how it develops. Um, finding places where they can talk about their work. Um, who, you know, who I love reading interviews where people are talking about their process, um, where people are also aware of or thinking about things about like, what's their angle, what's their audience, like who do they want to be reading this? Right. And from what perspective? And that's not like for me, the answer, if I'm going to teach it, is not not like I want students to be reading this, but like I want them to be aware of like what sort of audience their intended audience is. So we can like think about these things as, you know, as a group of scholars, like looking at something and thinking about like, you know, what were the intentions here? Right. We're not just always where we're studying something, not always sort of just trying to read it if it's for us, but to understand who it's for and to think about those things. Um, I've often had the good pleasure to uh, collaborate on panels with artists or to moderate artists at events. Um, And so those events are really uh, great for people um, in the audience to hear about new work and work in process or where folks are. And those don't have to be, I am... Uh, I get a little claustrophobic at their huge comics conventions, but smaller comics conventions or even like zine festivals. I've met a lot of um, great artists at zine festivals as well. Um, you know, the Brooklyn Comics and Graphics Festival in, in past years. Um, but 
you know, wh- where are all these different spaces where people can come and sort of talk about their work? Um, so I'm, I'm really in some ways a social creature also. I'm also very much an introvert. And so I'm, you know, all these spaces where conversations are happening um, and finding, you know, hearing people talk about what excites them about their work. Is there anything that I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this? Like, obviously, you're an academic, but some of the work that you're talking about is not something that we would traditionally think of as academic, right? Like, you're not being like, I only teach Nick Susanis' unflattening in my classes, because its approach is this like meta theory based book, like you're you know, the books that you're, you're talking about and the works that you're talking about are significant in not just a theory-based way, but in a kind of like instances on the cultural landscape way. And I'm just wondering, is there, is there something that an author should be thinking about or a publisher should be thinking about, about a book that if they have it in their hands, they'd be like, oh, like this quality of this graphic novel is going to particularly appeal to academics. That's a good question. I, I feel like there's so many different comic scholars at this point that there's there's going to be a, an angle for any book. I, I think I found it really powerful recently um, when some books like March, um, you know, talking about civil rights, um, actually invested some time in sort of making teaching guides for the comics. And I thought that was really savvy um, because one of the things that does is it says here for teachers, like here's how you can teach with this comic. Right. And I think that's, that's super savvy too, because that says I'm going to show you how to teach a comic. And that means you're opening up your audience, not just, for people who are already teaching comics like me, but you're opening it up for people who may never have taught a comic and may never have thought about how to teach a comic and may not have thought about a comic as serious. So I think things like that are really super savvy and necessary. And so for works that have um, some sort of engagement with history, right, that's probably an easy sell. Um, I mean, March has a wide adoption among um earlier than the university level, although I've taught it at the university level and some of my students are really interested um, in how it taught. And I had students who uh, interviewed uh, like younger, um, younger folks at sort of different age groups and thinking about how they sort of responded to March. And they were thinking about sort of its sort of teaching qualities at different levels. And these were students of mine who were interested in becoming teachers themselves. Right. Um, so sometimes things move beyond. But um, if a book is thinking about how it could be taught, uh, that's useful. That's not something I'm necessarily going to use directly for me because I'm like, oh, comics. Of course, I teach comics. But that's something that's going to open it up so that people who aren't like, oh, of course, I teach comics might see a comic and think about like, well, this could be useful to teach, to teach something historical also, um, to teach something about someone's own personal experience, um, to teach about an issue, you know, whatever the, the case may be, like how, what sort of subject matter could it fit within, right? Like how can you pitch it in these different ways? Um, because that's really, I think where the market is perhaps that you're thinking about is not just the people who already are going to teach comics, but the people who could teach a comic, right. And who aren't teaching comics already. And those sorts of um, savvy marketing materials or pitches are really going to um, say to them, oh, yeah, why am I not teaching this comic already? Or I'm afraid of teaching this comic, but here, this guide will help give me the tools I need to approach this. So it's like an accessibility issue in a lot of ways. Yeah. I, I've definitely been surprised kind of over the years how intimidated people are by comics. Like they they know enough to take it seriously, so they're not being dismissive of it. But then they're like, how do I read this? How do I talk about this? Do I talk about the words? Do I talk about the pictures? People who don't have an art background don't always know how to talk about art. Uh, and I feel like a, a teaching guide might be sort of a, here, let me just give you an in to how to talk about this thing so you don't just get overwhelmed by even starting. Yeah, ex- I mean, I think it's exactly. And I think they, it's a sense of like, which sort of things should I focus on? And also, um, like, even if a, 
like say March is like a historically based comic, but there are ways in which it's going to necessarily be showing some things that are not the other things or adapting things for the comics form. And so thinking about those questions, I think is really important because even, you know, the history books aren't all the way objective and they're, you know, synthesizing things in a particular manner, but people, you know, trust those in a way that they perhaps don't always trust comics. Um, and so it's like how to show people the ways in which comics can be used to study um, particular issues um, can be sort of really powerful and convincing to people and also useful. Um, like if you're trying to uh, get a course adoption somewhere, somewhere where a, a teacher doesn't necessarily have as much freedom and might have uh, like an administrator who needs to approve um, like the reading list. So anything that folks can do to sort of help folks out who may want to teach with comics, but don't know how to do it, who may want to, but need approval, um, who are scared in certain ways. I think that's, that's sort of, that's the sweet spot where you're going to get, you know, you know, huge amounts of adoption because I'm just one person. Right. <laughs> so, you know, and I have like 35 students a class. So, you know, 35 books, you want, you want to go bigger and broader than just me. I mean, 35 books is pretty good. I was going to say, for most books, 35 books is a lot of books. <laughs> but I mean, that's part, I mean, that's part of the thing. It's like people, people talk about how great it is to get on college courses. I think that they think it's just because it's very flattering. But from a purely, like, brutal business perspective, like, if you have 10 high schools who are teaching your book and they're buying 30 copies of your book, that's a significant number of books for most people that, that can put you into a different tier of sales for a lot of people. So it's like, it's not just flattering. It's also maybe not the worst idea to have a, expand your readership in a different way. Yeah. And I also have self-interest in wanting to, in the, wanting to tell creators that you need to get to high schools and serve earlier spaces because then I get students who come to college having read comics and that's a whole different experience and having read comics in an academic um, setting, which is actually still pretty rare um, to encounter students who've done that. And I think you know, that, that can be a really powerful experience for folks. And I see a, a lot of people experiencing that for the first time in my classrooms and seeing how powerful that is for them. But, you know, it'd be great if, you know, in five years from now, everyone comes into my classroom saying, oh, yeah, we read that years ago. Old hands at comics literacy. Yeah, exactly. Everyone, comics literacy for everyone. Are there things that you wish that people knew about comics academia? Like things that you're like, ah, yes. I do this all the time, or this is common sense, that it still seems like people who, who aren't in academia are puzzled or confused or just don't know. I'm actually curious if like what comics academia looks like, what are sort of the perceptions people have, uh, have of us? I don't think that people really necessarily understand, like they see books that are like, you know, great women of comics or something and I don't think that they understand that these are often written by people who are coming from an academic background does that make sense like or they'll pick up these books and they're sort of confused about the way in which they're written because it, it's written in like a the style of like an academic book I think that a lot of people aren't really aware of this being like an ecosystem that there there's people doing real scholarship and and publishing and doing all these things kind of in the first place I mean I also think there's there's a perception for people who aren't interacting with the other academics in the community on a day-to-day -day basis like you are, that academics are kind of like instantiate themselves through publication. So when someone does a book, which of course is can be like so far of the way through their career, it's like they first appear to people outside academia and they're like, who's this rando who I've never heard of? Even if they're like, I've done 20 different articles, I've been a tenured professor, like all of that stuff, uh, you know, a book appears and then it's like, oh, like, this is a new academic that I can this, now. This book hear. magically appeared out of nowhere. How cool. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm hoping that's going to happen with my book someday because I'm in the throes of writing my first book and it's tough. Tell us about your book. Oh, um, well, I always like to say it's about how like feminist and queer theory folks like are friends. 
um, in some ways, because people were like, feminism, 1970s, and they're like queer or LGBT stuff in the 90s. And I'm like, well, what happened in the 80s? Like, in the 80s, and there was this fruitful space of like, um, women, and especially women of color, um, sort of doing all these sort of ground shifting things in feminism. And so I'm like thinking about how, um, you know, publishing practices and archives are really sort of important in sort of shaping our understandings of like visual practice among feminist and queer activists. So I'm thinking about comics, um, but also uh, other image print um, forms like photos, collages, drawings, and thinking about how people were thinking about their sexuality in these ways um, uh, and sort of theorizing them in these visual forms that we sort of haven't understood because we sort of think feminist theory or queer theory or any of these theories, if you're thinking about those things or you're thinking about them, you're thinking of like manifestos, you're thinking of text and you're not thinking of image. So like how, how do images think through sort of these issues um, that we'd associate um, with these sort of topics, right? And with, with these sort of activism. So for me, it's like sexuality in uh, image is really important. Thank you. That sounds really cool. But anyway, I mean, I think sometimes when I'm interacting with cartoonists, they are very suspicious of me or can be suspicious of academics in general. Um, because they're like, they're like, we perhaps because they just don't know what we do um, or they're intimidated by us or they think that we just sort of want to like uh, that scholarship is all about sort of critique. Right. And tearing people down. And cartoonists have often sort of been marginalized or felt sort of marginalized um, in society, but also by academia in this way. And sort of, you know, comics isn't something people sort of encountered in their own school uh, background. And so they're like, like, who are you? Right. Like you're the strange person who's taking comics seriously in this way, but we don't take comics seriously. So I don't understand you. But most folks who are studying comics um, as scholars are fantastic, wonderful people who are doing it because they really believe um, in comics, um, even when they perhaps encounter difficulties um, sort of getting people to take them seriously because, you know, we're sort of a special breed of scholars. So comic scholars and comics creators should realize their their wholeness as one community rather than, uh, you know, putting up barriers between each other. Yeah, scholars and cartoonists, I think we should see each other as like a shared ecosystem, right, of, of people. Um, because like for me, when I'm doing work on comics artists, um, I'm often in contact with them. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking of it, and this is not true of all people, but I'm thinking of it from a spirit of generosity. Like if I'm going to write about someone, it's because I'm really excited and invested in their work. And I really want to be supportive of their work and shine a light on their work because their work hasn't gotten enough attention. It's sort of, yeah. it's often part of what has happened, right? Like, yeah, like, you're not going to like do a book or a paper on someone where you're like, this person's work is terrible and no one should ever read it. <laughs> I'm like, why would I waste my time tearing someone down? Um, but that's, you know, that's who I am as, as a scholar. Um, and so I think, you know, all, all of, you know, the, the folks that I, you know, I sort of like to think alongside are invested in the same, who are invested in sort of the same things, who are thinking about like, you know, representation um, in this very serious way and are thinking about sort of, uh, you know, shining light on creators or spaces of comics production that they don't get enough um, discussion. So like I have a, um, a friend, Jeremy Carnes, who's doing a lot of work on like, um, uh, Native American um, representations in comics, right? And that's that's really important. So also um, from, you know, representations by non-Native um, creators, but also representations um, from folks who um, are of those identities. Um, uh, Francesca Lynn, who I mentioned earlier, um, is doing some fantastic work, um, especially on like Black women comics artists. Uh, and she herself is a cartoonist. Um, so we have a number of scholars who are also in, them, in their way um, artists as well. Um, so, you know, there's just, you know, there's a lot of fantastic people. I could just, you know, mention a bunch of them who are, you know, have a deep love and appreciation for comics. Uh, you know, my, um, colleague Colin Beinecke is interested in sort of publishers, um, and sort of how different sort of publishers shape, um, sort of, uh, the style of a comics run, right? Like a, a publishing house and how, 
um, they're doing work there. So he actually interviews a lot of people interested in comics publishing and um, does interviews with them that are published in the Los Angeles Review of Books. Um, uh, if people want to read more about this, they should definitely read Osvaldo Oyola's um, blog, which is called The Middle Spaces, which brings together a lot of scholars thinking about comics um, and thinking about comics and sharing about comics um, in sort of these more accessible ways about um, he does an interview series talking with scholars about like what brings them to comics. Um, how are they interested in collecting comics? Cause a lot of us who study comics are also um, having to collect comics in order to study them in order to share um, about them and um, bring some sort of rare comics to our students. Um, so there's just, you know, a lot of fantastic folks out there who, you know, are interested in investing in comics out of a deep and abiding love uh, for, for the work. Um, and not that we aren't critical in a way, but not critical in a way to tear people down. Right. That's it. I don't think that's what you come into comics to do. So talking about people who are coming into comics, if you had your students, other, other undergraduates or graduate students who are like, yes, like I would like a similar job to you. Is there advice that you would give them? How can they achieve their dreams? The advice I would give them is you need to think about uh, not just comics, but sort of how comics are connected to other things that you're interested in. Like what are other fields out there? Um, and this goes back to what I was thinking about earlier in terms of there aren't a lot of jobs in comics. You know, like that just doesn't happen for a lot of folks. Um, that doesn't mean that you can't have a good job in academia. Although I will say, if you don't need to be in academia, don't be in academia. I know a lot of amazing folks who do really, really important work who aren't finding permanent jobs in academia. Um, so, you know, you can complete your doctoral degree um, and not be able to find stable work. And that I don't want to sugarcoat any of that. I'm I am very lucky that I have found a job, but it was three years of searching and applying to nearly 100 jobs every time um, and getting very few you know, very few responses. Um, but most of the responses I had were as were in these other fields that I had positioned myself within. So fields like digital studies, digital humanities, um, writing studies, first year writing, gender studies, other fields. I was saying um, I am legible to these other fields and I am legible to these other fields because I am publishing in these fields because I'm going to these fields conferences. So even though I do comics, I was doing comics in these other ways and making myself legible to these other discourses so that when I was on the job market, I could say, um, hey, I publish in Women's Studies Quarterly, so I am a Women's Studies scholar, right? Like, And, and I have published a piece that uses digital tools at, and digital methods, um, so you should hire me in your digital humanities job. And so that's, you know, that's where I think the important thing to do um, these days, since there aren't a lot of jobs, you have to figure, figure out how to be conversant across fields, right? Um, so you're like ticking a lot of boxes in a lot of different areas. Yeah, like so I have a friend, um, Nicholas Miller, who has um, a tenure track job, um, but he was hired as an early Americanist. So he studies early American literature, um, but he's also, um, hit a lot of his publishing um, focus these days is in comics and is in contemporary sort of transmedia adaptations of comics. Um, does a lot of work on Archie and Riverdale. It's fantastic. Um, but he, the, where, how he got the job was because he was trained as an early Americanist, um, studying early American literature. That, that's a more unique case than some people. But, um, you know, often the comics isn't necessarily what's going to get you the job, but it might be something that intrigues people, right, about you. I mean, that's not my case. Uh, but I, I never expected to get this job either, Um you know, I thought I was going to be t teaching, you know, uh, educational technology or, you know, other things that are definitely important facets of what I do and enhance the work I do with comics, um, but are different than the comics or sort of are affiliated with the comics work. I can see how your interest in networking kind of comes through in the way that you look at the field. I feel like it kind of comes through everything in this conversation. It's fascinating. And it's, it's nice to hear you talking about this also, because it's, I mean, unless you're leaving something huge out of this conversation, you are not also a working cartoonist. 
I don't think. No, I'm I am a collage artist and I actually do make zines. So you're involved in zine culture. That's like a big thing. Well, and the reason I mentioned this is because it's really nice to hear somebody who isn't like kind of in group, for lack of a better way of putting it, who's really thinking about sort of the fact that comics is not just a bunch of individual works or a bunch of individual big names, but this very complicated system of, you know, venues and uh, like the places where things are being published, the individual works that are being published and who is publishing them and when and what the context of that is and the sort of like larger community that is sort of creating these venues in the first place. Like this is all really important, but I think it often is not really a part of the conversation when people are just talking about a comic that they've read. Mm -hmm. So it's very nice to be hearing somebody who is taking all this so seriously. Oh, I mean, I think it's really important. And for me, I think one of the things that has been really important for thinking about feminist and queer work in general, I mean, is the intergenerational contact. I mean, we're often thinking of, um, you know, sort of intergenerational conflict, like, uh, you know, the activists who sort of, get older and they're like, oh, those young kids, they don't understand like how it was in my day and they don't understand my issues or I don't understand their issues today and how they're thinking about, you know, for interest, like, you know, I don't, you know, I don't understand how like gender is sort of more various today than it was, you know, in my time. But I think, you know, for, especially for comics, intergenerational contact has been sort of where it's been for, um, women creators, for queer creators, for, um, you know, sort of, you know, the sort of other space of comics to sort of drive comics forward. So, you know, something like queers and comics, I, 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 I honestly not getting paid to say this, but you know, I feel like I'm plugging this amazing conference. No, it's a great conference. People should go to it. People should go. Um, but these spaces where, you know, like this person made space for a new artist to publish their work. Like I see this happening all the time and I see it happening. Like when I'm looking at like, you know, I'm in the lesbian history archives, which everyone should go to in Brooklyn, New York. And I'm paging through and spending hours paging through, you know, these huge grassroots periodicals. And I see it happening on the page, you know, um, artists supporting other artists or, you know, um, one artist, um, you know, sponsoring another artist's work in this publication so that artist can get paid. Um, or, you know, when people are doing a comic book together, um, figuring out a way to bring in new artists. Or like, as I was saying, my um, colleague, uh, Leah Meisner, is often thinking about sort of these mentorship opportunities that sort of are within the comic themselves. Yeah, and that's still <laughs> happening. Like, that's, oh, that's yeah. happening today. Like, it's it's really great. Like, there's a huge amount of that, like, you know, seasoned cart comics person pairing up with younger comics person to work on a book. Like it's uh it's a big thing in or an ongoing way. Even, or even at conferences where you see a seasoned artist sharing table space with artists who can't necessarily afford a table themselves. So it's all these sort of small things too, that I think are really important for building community. Um, you know, artists who share a uh, working space together, right. All of these are small things. Um, I remember, Years ago, I was really interested in sort of the Pizza Island working space, uh, Julia Wirtz, um, Kate Beaton and company. Um, and I was like so fascinated by this working space. There's all these that are like small communities of folks at the same level, but also folks, you know, across um, sort of generations helping people each other out. And for me, that's been really um, heartening to see. Right. And something I often like try to model in my own work or, or, you know, write about in my own work, like when I'm writing about um, someone like Jennifer Camper. So where can people find you on the Internet if they want to look up more about you? I have a Twitter account. Um, my handle is Magdor, M-A-G-D-O-R. And if people are wondering what the hell with that handle, it's because uh, it's a high school nickname. Um, so you know how back in the day there was Trogdor the Burdenator. It's an internet reference. You can look this up. And so I was Magdor. Uh, and so it's a, sort of a nickname. So that's my Twitter handle. Um, and I'm often not super active on there, but I do have a presence on there. Um, I'm, I become very active during conferences um, and sure sharing things. I'm also always interested in retweeting things and sort of sharing out links, sort of community links. If there's something important that I want to sort of reference or make people pay attention to um, there. But I also have a website um, that sort of shares about my work, um, connects to, 
you know, media representation. I'll hopefully get to share this podcast on there too. And so that's just, you know, margaretgalvin.org. And so that sort of also connects to some of my other things, uh, projects I'm doing as well as where you can find my work on the internet. Excellent. Graphic Novel TK is co-produced by Gina Gagliano and Allison Wilgus and is brought to you by The Beat. You can find our show notes along with other comics news and podcasts at comicsbeat.com. Our podcast graphics were created by Shivana Sokdeo. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. You can follow us on Twitter at graphicnoveltk or email us at graphicnoveltk at gmail.com. <laughs>